Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today, we're going to look back over the last five years of this podcast, five years of really tumultuous politics, and we're going to look ahead to what's coming next on this podcast and on others. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. If you enjoy listening to Talking Politics, you'll definitely enjoy reading the LRB. That's why they publish a reading list of relevant writing from the archive to accompany every episode on lrb.co.uk and also why you, Talking Politics listeners, are invited to subscribe for just £1 an issue via the URL lrb.me talk. That's lrb.me talk. Talking Politics in partnership with the London Review of Books. So today, with me and with Helen Thompson, it's really nice that we also have someone that regular listeners will have heard in the background many times, but not often in the foreground, Catherine Carr, our producer, who's been the producer of Talking Politics from the beginning. And we're coming up to a milestone. We're nearly at our 300th episode of Talking Politics. There are more than that if you count what this podcast was before. It used to be called Election. And we just had our 20 millionth download. And we thought we would just look back partly because it's just been an incredible five years of politics. And we've each picked out a couple of clips, moments from the past five years that sum up to us something about either this podcast or the politics that we've been talking about. Helen, so it's true that before we were talking politics, we were this sort of little Cambridge University podcast called Election. And you and I, we started this in 2015 for the UK, we were just going to talk about the UK general election, which we did for a few weeks back then. That was the Cameron Miliband election. So this was before Brexit, before Corbyn, before Trump. And you and I have been talking on this podcast about politics ever since and off this podcast as well. I mean, I I don't know what I feel about what we were doing in 2015 with that election. It sort of seems a million years ago, and it seems really quaint. It's sort of different world of politics. I can never decide whether it is or not. Does it seem to you, that 2015 election, that it comes from another world? Oh, completely. Aside from anything else, our relationship to talking about this was very different. As you say, you know, we were sitting in your office and speaking for myself here, I'm not necessarily speaking for you, didn't really have any idea whether anyone was going to be listening to anything that we had got to say or whether it'd be worth anybody listening to anything that we'd got to say. And by the time the election was over, things weren't quite as a lot of the political commentary about British politics took them to be. I mean, most people were pretty surprised by the outcome of the 2015 election. Including us. But at the same time, if you think about then that summer after the election, things started to change pretty quickly because it was that summer that Corbyn was elected in September, I think, by the time the actual election of Corbyn took place. But I do remember something that summer, which was the moment when Blair, I think, made his second intervention in that Labour leadership election in making a speech. And it suddenly dawned on me that it was quite likely that Corbyn was going to win. And that somehow the fact that Blair was saying this was actually reflective of the reason that he was going to win and perhaps even a little bit causal. That was, for me anyway, a symbolic moment in which something of the past was being very clearly left behind because you could argue that Cameron had positioned himself as Blair's successor and there he had won that 
election on terms that were recognisable from the Blair era, with the caveat, I should say, of the Scottish question. But here we were just a few months later being plunged into a, a really quite different kind of politics and that continued. So by the time we were talking again, starting in the early primaries in the United States, I think it had already seemed our relationship to politics in the sense of how we were thinking about what was happening was really very different than, than when we started. And it's weird because some things, and we'll talk about this in a second, there have been events along the way that have really jolted everyone, huge surprises, huge discontinuities. And yet, if you think back to that 2015 election, we spent quite a lot of time talking about Scotland, the Union, the SNP. This was post the first Scottish independence referendum. And literally last week, the last podcast that we did was about that too. So there are these odd continuities you know people like Nicola Sturgeon run all the way through this story as people like Jeremy Corbyn come and go Catherine you were one of the things I remember about with this podcast is you have been our guide all the way through to the world of podcasting and I always say this unlike us and politics where we're often completely oblivious to what's coming next you had a pretty clear sense which wasn't obvious to many people certainly not in sort of 2015 2016 that podcasting was the future in many ways and that serious podcasts like ours, politics podcasts, could find an audience. But has it surprised you how this podcast has gone? It's completely surprised me. I read the other day an article by Helen Zaltzman, who's the queen of podcasting, and she said, oh, I've been podcasting sort of before it got cool and now it's ubiquitous and there was never a sweet spot where it was kind of really hip to be podcasting. I feel like she might be a little bit wrong because in 2015, it felt like it wasn't ubiquitous yet. You still had to explain to people quite carefully what podcasting was, but that the idea of pre-selecting an audience who were interested in a topic and who would seek you out and who would sit through chewy and chunky discussions on things that might not find their way to mainstream broadcast radio seemed really attractive. And I think that works in all ways, you know, funny podcasts work in the same way and ridiculous podcasts work in the same way. And that freedom to find your own audience just seemed really exciting to someone who's used to working for the BBC and within a kind of commissioner structure, which is less free than that. And I mean, this year has been odd. So podcasting literally has become ubiquitous this year because of the pandemic. There's been an explosion of, it sometimes feels like everyone's got one and we do too. And as we'll hear, we have more than one. But there was a period in this for me where podcasting started to feel like, I don't want to kind of big us up too much here, but it started to feel like a natural medium for talking about politics. Because it is one of the really striking features of podcasting that lots and lots of podcasts that have quite large listenerships are about politics, which five years ago, that would have seemed to me extraordinary. Politics felt like a kind of niche thing sort of what Helen and I do for a living, we teach it, we write about it. But the idea there could be so many podcasts, in some ways, it sometimes looks, if you look at the podcast charts, that along with comedy and maybe sport, politics is the thing that people are most interested in. I mean, I'm I'm sure that's not true. I'm sure people aren't always all that interested in politics. But it does seem like it, it's a fit with podcasting. It does. And yet, that's partly to do with what's happened in the last five years, of course. I mean, yeah. politics is happening to people in a way that I don't think politics was happening to people or everybody five years ago. And scrolling through all of the episodes to look for the clips that I've chosen as the two that I want to talk about, I sort of felt quite 
a sense of vertigo, like all of these events, it was like a sort of speeding up roundabout. It started slowly in 2015 and it gathered pace and it gathered pace and it gathered pace. And it feels like this assault of events on people and nobody's escaped politics having an effect on their lives, even if it's just on the relationships that they have with people and the way that they view the world and the way that the other person in that relationship views the world. That seems to have become much more spiky and uncomfortable And so it seems natural that people would then go and look for places where, not where people agree with them and someone's just going to confirm their world to you, although there are plenty of places you can do that. And I'm not being sniffy in any way about those sorts of podcasts, but I think the hunger for a step back from maybe personal relationships and the way that politics is playing out in your life became much more valuable in the last five years. And I think that's what you guys have done is... I've always wanted to sort of describe it as light, not heat. That's become much more important. Helen, do you think it is actually, this is more about what's happened to politics than what's happened to podcasting, that something really has happened with politics? Like Catherine says, it's it's not just podcasting has become ubiquitous. In this weird way, politics has become ubiquitous. I mean, a lot of us, I think, even people like you and me who do it for a living, were used to a world in which you could zone in and out of politics. And it's just become so much harder in the last particularly maybe three years to zone out? I hesitate to say everybody because I just don't think that that's true. But I think that for lots of people since 2016, really, their relationship to politics has changed. And that's about how much basically headspace goes into it and often deep emotion as well in everyday life. And that is, I think, strange for or it has a particular form of strangeness anyway for people like you and I David as you say who've and are living for two decades before all this more than two decades before this from supposedly thinking clearly about politics and then really having to be taken aback and wondering what on earth in the past it was that one thought one understood and having then to be less of an observer and more of a participant and I think in the case of those of us who voted in referendums, actually, whether that's the case for Scotland or the Brexit referendum. I think that referendums change people's relationship to politics because you are being given a tiny little share of the responsibility for something huge. And after that, I think that people don't just go back to the more passive relationship they have in representative democratic politics. In terms of what's happened since 2016, I would sort of separate things out in terms of the things that have been the ongoing story for Britain around Brexit, around the Union, around the Labour Party, and then the things that have played out in other parts of the world, particularly, obviously, the United States, because we have spent some time talking about the United States. And it seems to me that as time went on past 2016, it was a lot easier, really, to engage with British questions than it was to engage with the American questions coming from the outside. One of the things I liked about this podcast, I have always liked about it, is it really isn't in a way planned. We tend to work out what we're doing from week to week. But these sort of themes emerge and and we find ourselves over time, even over a number of years, talking through some of these big questions of politics, coming back to them, I hope in not too repetitive a way, but sort of going through a big question over a relatively long period of time. So the Union and Scottish independence is one. We've talked at various points to various different people about the impact of digital technology, not just on politics, but on our world. We've had a sort of series of themes around climate change. But in some ways, I think that you may not agree with this, Helen, but I'm going to put it on you. The dominant theme has been the fallout from the financial crisis, that somewhere in the background of lots of 
discussions that we've had, and it connects to Britain, it connects to America, it connects to Europe and the Euro. It connects to questions around energy that we've talked about a lot with you and oil and so on. It connects to all those questions about technology and Facebook and the shifting nature of the economy conversations we've had with people like John Norton, Diane Coyle. But the crash, 2008, is the event that probably dominates a lot of our discussions. And there's been a series of conversations that you have had with Adam Tooze over the period that we've been doing this podcast, particularly the last couple of years, that really stand out for me. And that's one of the clips that you've chosen. So what when you look back on this, how do you think about 2008? And we were talking to start with, with Adam Tooze about his book, Crashed, which is about the crash and the consequences of it. How does that frame what we've done? The easy answer is that it very much does because certainly the ways in which at least I started to think about Brexit analytically came out of the crash and the Eurozone crisis. So I think there's quite a complicated relationship between those two things. And it really was through needing to engage on talking politics, primarily though not exclusively, that I sort of extended the way in which I thought about Brexit into other areas constitutionally and geopolitically. But that was my starting place. I think that during the course of the times we've been having these conversations, including with Adam, I've moved to a position where I think that most of the fault lines that we're now talking about were actually in place by a few years before 2008. So I don't quite see it as a turning point, perhaps in the way in which I once did. But what I would say is that the ways in which I thought about those questions on like where the world changed, if we want to just put it in those big picture terms is that those conversations with Adam have been a pretty important part of my thinking and I've really enjoyed them. So in thinking about a couple of clips that I could talk about for this episode, I wanted to go back to the very first interaction that Adam and I had when we were talking about his book. And I sort of suggested a slightly different narrative for thinking about China's place in the crisis and then had to think back about what his response to that was. So although that China's rise or return, I think it's a better way to describe it, isn't a structural cause of the financial crisis mm. itself, it is a pretty important, I think, trigger cause of different episodes of it. That's absolutely fascinating. I don't think there's much there I would, there's nothing I would disagree with. Another element to add is that one of the reasons why China, there's really no point in exercising this threat of selling off treasuries in particular, not Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, is there's overwhelming global demand for them because they're the only safe asset left. And this is a sort of, to come back to, to David's sort of more general point, we expected the risks to be in the public sector, in the sovereign debt segment. It turned out to be in the private sector segment. And so perversely, if you like, given the prior expectation, money runs into the bit that was thought to be the risky bit, in other words, the sovereign debt. So treasuries are, in fact, in huge demand. If China had decided to offload a trillion dollars of treasuries, it would have found ample buyers. It probably wouldn't have moved the market very much because everyone wanted them at that moment. Because you've got to get out of these securitized mortgages and you've got to put your money somewhere. So that element, I think, is very important. I would also completely agree with you, and I, and I don't argue in the book, and I don't think anyone would argue that, as it were, there isn't a real risk here. This is Paulson's central preoccupation. It's just that it's managed because it's recognised very early as a geopolitical, geoeconomic problem. And Paulson sets up this strategic partnership uh, dialogue with the Chinese, which he runs personally. I completely agree that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are critical and they are, as Brad Setzer pointed out, you know, bailed out because they're too Chinese to fail. That's the crucial thing about Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And the signal that the US Treasury sends 
and the political price that Paulson's willing to pay for doing Man- Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which does indeed, I think, foreclose the option of a quick and easy move on Lehman, is explicitly to do with his needing to signal to Beijing, look, we're absolutely serious about this. We'll give you a good out into treasuries. We'll protect you on the way out of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. This is going to be OK. Play along with us because we're actually managing this. The argument is not that that wasn't a risk. It's that it was a risk that was recognised and was quite effectively managed. And there is a nightmare scenario in which everything converges in the summer of 08. They don't get the Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac bailout done. And then we have a combination of the banking crisis and the China sell-off at the same moment in the same Absolutely. Place. And I think the other thing that the Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac crisis shows is they basically protect the bondholders 100% yeah. and they wipe the shareholders yeah. out near 100%. Hardly, there aren't many of them in Fannie Mae. Yeah. That is a signal of yeah. like, well... What are we going to do with AIG, yeah. which they do something similar with AIG. Yeah. Yeah. Because when it really matters, the thing that, that is preoccupies, as you say, that the Bush administration and the Fed is, is we cannot have a China crisis. Yeah. Those conversations, I think, have moved on, though, to something that's even bigger than the crash, which has been the pandemic. And I think one of the things that's been hard this year is where do you start thinking about what the politics of this year has been like? I think that Adam has thought incredibly deeply this year about what it might mean, what we're going through. And so if the world that shaped the first four or five years of talking politics was the crash, whether one wants to start it a bit before the crash or with the crash, We're now into something different, though I would say with the lasting legacy of what happened between 2005 and 2008 and something of that, the mind-bogglingness of what we've now gone through, I think came out in the last conversation that you and I had with with Adam um, last month. So the other thing that we've done quite a lot of, and I think Helen, you and I often particularly enjoy, and this really is taking a step back, episodes where we take deeper history, longer history, that includes conversations we've had with the historian Tom Holland about ancient Rome and how ancient Rome may or may not resemble the politics of the 21st century. We've talked about the Reformation. We did one, and I I know this is the other one that you've picked, with Boyd Hilton, the historian Boyd Hilton, about the Corn Laws. And we were doing this really at the height of, I don't want to call it Brexit madness, but when Brexit was this sort of thing that it was really hard to talk about because it was both all-consuming and, to me, more or less incomprehensible. We were right in the thick of it in every sense of that phrase and talking about the corn laws and it was the corn laws were something that occasionally came up and we'll hear in the clip you know there was conservative politicians like Jacob Rees-Mogg were trying to use those analogies themselves to sort of point to various ghastly possible fates for the conservative party so that corn laws episode which captures something about something we try and do on talking politics what do you enjoy about those ones the the sort of deep history ones what I've enjoyed about that deep history is that either in their origin or in preparing for them, thinking about them. I've actually been reading things that are off my, out of my comfort zone. And so I think that you and I had a conversation about the Corn Laws because people were starting to make sort of comparisons with the Conservative Party being divided in a way that was comparable to 1846. I think, as I recall, that we were doing this after the European Parliament elections, or at least around the European Parliament elections, when the Conservatives ended up with 9% of the vote, you know, just like a sort of catastrophic performance. And partly I picked the Corn Laws one rather than the others. I could easily have picked one of the others because it involved me, if you remember, going to um, lunch with Boyd Hilton first at Trinity College to try to persuade him to come on. And having read a couple of his books back in the, the 90s, I mean, rather in awe of him, I was rather intimidated about the prospect of trying to persuade him that he wanted to talk 
about the Corn Laws in a context in which I was going to have to engage with him from a position of complete ignorance in comparison to his knowledge. And, and he made it pretty clear that he was pretty sceptical about his ability to say anything, which of course was, <laughs> you've got no idea how little you can know and talk about sometimes. But he was very, very resistant when I was having lunch with him. And indeed, when we started the conversation to sort of the long history and getting into the Brexit comparisons, he was always trying to avoid them and get his back to Hutchinson or you know his hero. But there was this moment, and which is one that I've picked, where suddenly this sort of long answer came out of him, where he basically rewrote the history of British politics from 1846, in which the Conservative Party just disappeared. And somehow there was something very talking politics about that. And I like the way in which we drew something out of him in giving that kind of answer. But I also like the fact that I was able to um, say things about Disraeli, because I had been reading Disraeli's political trilogy in the months before. So it was a pleasure both because of what I learned in preparing for it, and it was a pleasure because we got that kind of answer out of Boyd Hilton. Whereas, of course, when the Labour Party comes along, it's not interventionist, it's not really redistributory. Well, it may be redistributory, I'm sorry, I'm wrong about that, but it's it's not going after power it's not going after the House of Lords or Oxbridge or public schools. It's trying to redistribute wealth within broadly an existing system. But an older radical party with a new Gladstone Liberal Alliance would have gone for power. So we started with this cliche that the Jacob Rees-Mogg line, which is that May risks making the great mistake that Peel make and splitting the party and keeping the party out of power for a generation and so. But on your account, actually the way this could have gone would have killed the Conservative Party altogether. And we should see this as the period of the miracle of the Conservative Party, that it's still the same party, it's still alive today. And to some extent, give Disraeli the credit. Not that he had ideas or anything, but he had gusto. He kept kept the show on the road. I think think there's more to Disraeli than just thinking he had gusto. I mean, I think the thing, and it goes back, I think, to something which he says actually in in one of his speeches, on his big speech, I think, on the Corn Laws, saying that the the party of the people and the party of England, and that's what Disraeli succeeds in, in keeping the Conservative Party, I think, in the game because... As the party of England. As the party of England. And and that is why it's not a coincidence then that it's the ability to tie an English question as a critique of home rule for Ireland to empire that is so central to the person who then really does reinvent the Conservative Party as the dominant party in British politics is Lord Salisbury. The ability of Disraeli to keep the Conservatives as a protector of English interests in some sense in the Union I think comes into its own once you get Gladstone runs into his Irish problems and we get into Lord Salisbury. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Regular listeners to Talking Politics over the last few years will know that very Tragically, two of our contributors, Finbar Livesey and Aaron Rapport, died last summer within about six weeks of each other. And that for us was an incredibly difficult time. And we wouldn't want, I think, any of us to look back on the the last few years without having something to say about Finbar and Aaron, what they contributed and what we miss from them. Catherine, you've picked two episodes, one that features Finbar and one that features Aaron. Let's start with the episode with the clip from Finbar, which goes back to the 2017 general election. One of these occasions when we've all sat around having had very little sleep and tried to string a few sentences together. What was it about this moment with Finbar that you really wanted to remember? Well, I think 
not least the old music without being flippant, which I really miss when I listen to this clip. But really, it was one of a number of mornings, as you said, when we gathered in the department really early. Somebody special had to unlock the door and none of us had much sleep. We put the tellies on, we got the coffee. And there was this sense of being together and experiencing something together in real time, as David likes to say, trying to digest the news and trying to sort of think about what it might mean. But I also, because we met in the department and we haven't for nearly a year because of the pandemic, what this clip and the funny little sort of outtakey bits at the beginning makes me feel is a sort of immense sense of gratitude without being too soft focus about it, about the number of people who, particularly at the beginning, when, as you said, we had that sense that we didn't know what we were doing or who was listening or what it could grow into and what this podcast might be, that they gave so willingly of their time and their support and their encouragement and their expertise. Don't forget, we started this podcast at around about the time when the idea of expertise was being questioned. And the beautiful thing about producing this podcast for me has been the learning and the rubbing up against people who have immense brains and an immense amount of expertise. And they were willing to give that to us, even early in the morning after about half an hour's sleep. And Finbar just made it a lot of fun as well. Hello, my name is David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Here we are again, again, sitting around this table after Helen, no sleep, Finbar, no sleep, four hours, Glenn, half an hour, me, no sleep. The catchphrase for this podcast when we started was Corbyn, exclamation mark, Brexit, exclamation mark, Trump, exclamation mark. I was thinking recently we should update that, and it turns out we don't need to update that. Corbyn, Brexit, Trump, that's our world. So we're going to try and make sense of this. I partly tried to sleep and couldn't sleep because I was thinking of all the things that I've said in the last two years or written that now look a bit foolish about the Labour Party, including the one I think I'm most ashamed of, in which I wrote that the Labour Party was suffering death by enthusiasm, which doesn't look right now. Glenn's nodding at me. Although, Glenn, I think the five-year fixed-term Parliament Act is still important. I agree. Something I think we were collectively wrong about, but this is not, doesn't need a massive sort of self-flagellation. I mean, it is an astonishing move in six weeks, not the collapse of the Tory vote, because it didn't collapse. They've polled at 43. You know, I said, ha, 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 I would resign from whatever it is I do if they got less than 37. And there was about 10 seconds last night where I <laughs> thought, what's the vote share? Um, and then... Uh, 43, as we said before, is kind of close to landslide territory on previous elections, Blair and so on. It's Labour polling 40.8 or something on the latest estimate from where they were in the local elections, from where they were in the polls. It's just astonishing. And it's going to be really hard because we're not even at the point where all the votes are counted. So not all the seats are called yet. I mean, it's still that early in the morning. And to try and disambiguate what we would say is the Labour voters going back to Labour because they couldn't in any way vote for anybody else? Or did the campaign really matter? Because it's going to be one of the other things. It clearly mattered. And so that moment where you say the Tories held on to their vote relatively steadily throughout the campaign and then Labour came in a wave, it feels like the campaign for once has really, really mattered. Not that I don't remember every single word that everybody has said on every single episode of Talking Politics. Of course I do, and I treasure them all. But Erin Report, you mentioned had a particular way of storytelling and anecdote regaling 
which made things stick in my brain forever. Now, over the summer, sometimes with talking politics, we all wanted a bit of a rest. And so sometimes we record slightly different episodes or slightly different series. And one of them was a really eclectic series we did, a series of guides to things like the civil service or nuclear weapons, or actually they were two different series, but we gathered a number of topics that we knew we had experts on hand to talk about and invited them to come on and do a kind of 20, 25 minute chat. And this one with Aaron will always stick in my memory. I can recite parts of it, I think, almost off by heart. The one where there was nearly a nuclear disaster because someone in Iowa or someone like that dropped a spanner into something that they shouldn't have dropped a spanner into. And his joy in his knowledge and how he could skate and dance around it, going from treaties and agreements and um, the geopolitics of the time down to little events that happened and the importance of them, as you'll hear in this clip. And I can see his kind of slightly one eyebrow raised wry smile throughout the whole of it. So that's why I chose this one. You finally do get, I think, the real catalyst for the non-proliferation treaty, the NPT, comes in 1967 when China tests pretty quickly its first thermonuclear, its first hydrogen bomb, only about two and a half years after it tests its first fission device, which is shocking because, A, they beat the French. The French had tested atomic fission device but hadn't yet mastered thermonuclear technology. China beats the French during the midst of the Cultural Revolution, no less, and this shocks a lot of people, no less because of certain racist assumptions at the time. And also, there is a summit between Soviet leaders and American leaders, a little-known summit that takes place shortly thereafter, in which one of the events is they kind of sit down and watch a movie together, and the movie is about Chinese attitudes towards nuclear weapons, where even though now the Soviets and the Americans think of them as unconventional, right, different, they're not just big artillery pieces. The movie seems to imply, right, that this is exactly right how the Chinese think about them, right? They're just weapons like any other weapons. They just have a bigger bang for your buck. And so this scares the bejesus out of McNamara and other kind of hard-headed people at this meeting. And you get agreement on anti-nuclear proliferation pretty shortly thereafter. And what I always remember about that one is how it ended, unless I've got this wrong, someone can correct me, with Aaron saying that nuclear weapons will always keep us safe until the day they kill us all. Exactly. (laughs) So, David, you sent me your two clips, and I was quite surprised because I was surprised by two things. One, they're both from quite close together. And two, they feel like they were recorded 965 years ago because of the pandemic. And I couldn't believe when I looked them up that actually they were quite so recent, perhaps not so much with the first clip. But the first clip was the last time I think you and I met in person to record a podcast. And we did the Wuhan elbow tap with our guest. And we were talking about something that was just about to kind of unfold. It was like we were at the top of a health skeleton. We didn't even know it yet. And I wondered why you'd chosen this particular clip of this particular episode to illustrate that. I didn't actually know that was the last time that we'd met in person, but that is a big part of the reason that I chose this. We were right on the cusp of the thing that we've all been living through now for nearly a year. So at that point, when we spoke to David Spiegelhalter, who's had a very prominent role in UK politics and UK public life in the last nine months as one of the leading experts on how to think about the statistics of the pandemic, When we spoke to David, the pandemic had just got a hold of the UK, but only just. It was still mainly a thing that seemed to be happening abroad in places like Iran and Italy. But he had a very clear sense of what was coming. 
But it was also an episode actually not about that. It was primarily about super forecasting and what you might call the Dominic Cummings question, because this was about the time when Cummings was hiring his freaks and weirdos. This was before Cummings himself fell on that sword, hiring his freaks and weirdos to shake up British politics and British government. And David Spiegelhalter, if anyone listens to the whole episode, is very fair-minded and actually interesting about both the need for that kind of influence in public life and particularly in political life, the need for people who do see things differently, including Dominic Cummings, and the need, as he says very clearly in the podcast, to keep those people on a tight leash. So I remember it for those reasons. We're now, we're not in the post-Cummings age, but we're sort of in the post-Cummings age. It was about that. The reason the clip that I've picked here really stays with me is it expresses some confidence in the ability of this country to get through the pandemic and the sensible, serious ways in which he expected the British public to respond to the advice that they were given. And people can take a different view about how that has panned out. But he also talks about not just risk, but the need to acknowledge uncertainty. And uncertainty is absolutely a central part of the story of the last year. People literally do not know what they are doing for understandable reasons, including many of the politicians. And we should be forgiving of that, but we also should recognise just how hard the politics of uncertainty is. I mean, there's a hint of it in his answer here. It's incredibly difficult for politicians to say they haven't a clue what's going to happen or indeed what they should do, but they're doing their best. There's something for me a bit poignant about this coming from earlier this year. And it also it touches on the thing that you know, you'll have heard it in that clip with Finbar. We are experts in the politics of uncertainty because on this podcast, you know, one of the things that always makes us smile, I think, about our pretensions to know what we're talking about is how consistently often after a little sleep, we've recorded a podcast and acknowledged that we had no idea what was going to come next. I actually think we are remarkably resilient. It's the same when people say, oh, people don't trust experts. I think this is complete nonsense. There's no evidence for that at all. People are basically trusting of expertise and an advice and scientific advice, not particularly politicians, but that's really, this government is doing really quite well in getting the scientists in a really prominent position. And people are already changing their behaviour and people will react in a positive way, provided that they feel that the authorities are being straight with them. And being open and honest about both what they know and the uncertainties, and not just the risks, but the uncertainties that they do not know and cannot know what's going to happen or even what is best to do. See, I, I have um, actual confidence that people will respond in a reasonable way, provided that the narrative, in a sense, is kept going and kept, I wouldn't say controlled, but is comes from scientifically driven expertise and there isn't an opportunity for alternative conspiratorial narratives as have happened say with vaccines to develop and develop a core vocal people who, who just don't believe what is being said we have to be i think preempt that and make sure that that doesn't develop by engaging knowledgeable and scientists with good communication skills out there to tell it how it is the second clip i think illustrates two things about talking politics for me anyway. And the first one is something you've already touched on, is how we return to or talk through and discuss big ideas and big themes and big stories. And we did a series about America, and this clip is from one story that's a big part of the politics of America over the last, well, long time, it turns out. 
And the second thing this illustrates for me is the way that we're constantly learning. I mean, I'm certainly learning. Everybody knows that. It's no secret. But that we're all learning from each other and that people are actively thinking while we're recording. As you say, it's not planned. It's a real conversation. And sometimes there are really big revelations. Yeah, so this one for me, in some ways, this is the most memorable episode we ever recorded. So it's with Sarah Churchwell, someone we've had on regularly, historian of America, someone who you know, has really contributed a lot to talking politics. We've talked to her about the history of American fascism. We've talked to her about the long story of many of the phenomena of the Trump era. But this one, in that series that we did with her and Gary Gerstle, who we also have spoken to many times about lots of different themes in American history. And you know, American history is, for me, a big part of what we do. This one, it just was all new to me. And I think I learned something from every episode of Talking Politics. And sometimes I just realized I had no idea. And this was one of those. So it was an episode about the history of abortion in the United States. And this extraordinary switch that happened from the 1960s through to the 1980s. So it happened during the 1970s, where essentially the Republican Party and the Democratic Party just switched sides. The Republicans were including evangelical Christians, pro-choice, and Democrats were pro-life, partly because of the Catholic base of their vote. And in an extraordinarily narrow period of time, in almost in the blink of an eye, through a mixture of cynicism, political chicanery, political entrepreneurship, and sort of political visionary qualities of some politicians who saw which way it was possible to reshape American politics, it flipped. And Sarah, in this episode, you know, talks passionately about this. She's never pretended that she's not on one side of many of the things that we discuss. You know, she's not trying to be sort of above it all and completely non-partisan. But the whole point of the historical understanding of these periods is to give a sense of what I think she articulates beautifully here, which for me is the central theme of all politics, which is its contingency. The fact that these things that we think are fixed are not fixed. And these positions that we hold, all of us, we come to these positions and we think this is who we are and this makes us who we are. We often don't really have a strong sense of how we got here. And when we see how we got here, we also maybe get a sense that we could change again. And this episode for me, almost more than any other, captured that feeling that the most passionate arguments, the deepest divisions, the most heightened partisanship is contingent. Well, that's why I think it's so important to tell these historical stories, because whichever side of the battle, and it is a battle right now, that you see yourself as being on, it's so entrenched that people tend to think "'twas ever thus as well. And I think it's really important to understand that history to see how contingent it is. And therefore, as you say, that people's positions change. So the idea that this is some great moral crusade is just a nonsense historically, because you can see all of the opportunistic reasons why they made the choices that they made. As I say, they were explicit about them. So to recognize that is to push back against some of the pious claims about the moral imperative that is driving all of this. But you can't push back too far because you actually are also talking about now 30 years of an educational system in which these people have been raised with this idea. And it is a profoundly, deeply held conviction that they truly believe. And the thing that I, I find myself telling Europeans a lot of the time when they ask me in bafflement, you know, why are these people voting for Trump? And how can people who call themselves Christians be voting for Trump? And the answer is that there are a great many of them, this is anecdotal, but there's a lot of 
of self-reporting suggesting that this is a, a significant factor in the in the election and the support of Trump is that, you know, these people aren't stupid and they're not dupes. It's not that they can't see that he's awful in all the ways that he's awful. It's that they are single issue voters. And this issue is so important to them that all the rest of it be damned. And all they care about are getting judges on the court who will stop abortion from happening because they now truly believe that this is a question about murder and they truly believe that it is a moral issue and that it is a black and white moral issue from their point of view. So part of it is understanding that we've gone from a belief that was pretty casually held by a lot of people. I mean, they weren't for it, but it didn't seem to be that much of an issue. But none of this stuff lines up neatly. Right. There are many historians pointing out um, Kevin Cruz and Julian Zelizer just recently wrote a book uh, called, I think, Fault Lines, which talks about how American history has shifted since 1973. And they choose 1973 as their starting point, both because of Watergate and because of Roe v. Wade. And it's a really compelling argument. America has changed a great deal in that period. But it's also as if then we can't see beyond 1973. And so we just think that that's our whole history. And so to say, actually, we've just inherited this quite recent history that we think is sort of naturalized and inevitable, and it's none of those things. Are we currently in a position where we're going to see a kind of 1973 to 1978 realignment, where suddenly everybody starts swapping around? I doubt that very much indeed. Before we go, we also wanted to tell you a little bit about our plans for next year and indeed for the Christmas period. We're going to be putting out a couple of talks that I recorded recently, one about climate change and COVID and one about the state of British democracy. Uh, That will be between Christmas and when we come back early in the new year, when we are going to be, we think, but I've said this so many times, so with a touch of caution, talking finally and definitively about the shape of the Brexit deal or no deal. In the new year, we're also going to be telling you about how you can listen to Talking Politics ad-free. We will explain where you go to sign up for that. That will all be coming in January. And at the start of February, we're going to have a new series of the History of Ideas, and we will tell you all about that too. And one last thing, Catherine, your new podcast relatively launched yesterday and your first episode is with someone that we had on Talking Politics a while back. Just tell us tell us about the first episode and who you're speaking to. Yeah, so the podcast is all about siblings and the conceiters that I talk to, a pair of siblings each episode, first separately and then together. So you get a kind of Mr and Mrs effect of people talking really privately about their relationship and then meeting up and talking together. So the first episode is with Jess Phillips, the Shadow Minister for Domestic Violence and Safeguarding. Yep, we talked to her on Talking Politics and on Relatively, she talks with her older brother, Luke. She's got three older brothers. Luke is the closest one. It's well known that he had problems with drugs for years. He was a heroin addict who ended up homeless, living in crack houses and on the streets. And Jess talks really openly about her role as his protector. But I also ask him about his role as her protector as she's been involved in politics in the last few years, which has become more dangerous? I do worry and I do... For me, it's not so much the threat of violence and and those things because I, I kind of understand that world and I don't take it too seriously. But the, the way that the political system can eat people up and that, that that's what I worry about, just that she will lose her magnetic north of um, her spirit. 
at times. Hmm. What do you think about that, Jess? Um, yeah, I mean, funnily enough, today I was on the phone to the police this morning before Luke arrived to do this and about somebody who's threatening to kill me. I said to Luke, oh, well, I've had a great morning. And he just, he he did exactly what he just did. He, he, he and I, the only word I can use for this is he diminished it. But I, I don't mean that negatively. He, he said, oh, you know, these people are dickheads. He's probably just bored because he's, it's a person, um, oh, I shouldn't say too much, but and it's a protective characteristic that though, isn't it? That we sort of try and diminish the threats and the violence but also Luke has never, ever been in the position where there is a need to sort of physically protect me. You have to remember that we grew up together. We were in the pub scene and the club scene where bad things would happen to both of us when we were teenagers and in our early 20s. And I I think Luke is well aware of how capable I am of looking after myself. That's the thing he doesn't want to diminish. He doesn't want to make me into a, a victim, for want of the better word. That episode is out now. You can get relatively wherever you get your podcasts. I hope everyone has, as much as it's possible this year, a lovely Christmas, a break. And we look forward to all the things we've got coming up on Talking Politics and History of Ideas in 2021. My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics. My name's Catherine Carr, and this is Relatively, a brand new podcast all about potentially the longest relationships of your life. Hi, Manuel. Hello, Rebecca. I'll be bringing siblings together to talk about the connections they have as adults, as well as what it was like growing up together. It was public knowledge that he was getting bullied. For all the downsides of mine and Luke's relationship, he has never not been my friend. Brothers and sisters, it's never straightforward. Relatively, available wherever you find your podcasts.